Well, this morning, uh, we're going to be wrapping up our study through Psalm 107. Uh, this will be week number f- six, I think, maybe. We've all lost count. Uh, but I think this is week number six in Psalm 107, which I've never spent six weeks in a psalm before, but it's been helpful to me. I've, I hope it's been helpful to you as well. We want to wrap things up uh, this week by studying the last uh, 10 or so verses, 10 or 11 verses of the psalm. Uh, but next week, we're going to be diving into a study of some of those great passages of Scripture surrounding the events of Easter. Uh, we're going to, in our part of our ramping up towards that, uh, really the most significant holiday on the Christian calendar, Easter, we really want to give some time to what happened around um, the incredible, amazing fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. And so we're going to be diving in and doing that this week. But I wanted to wrap things up here in Psalm 107 this morning. You can join with me in your Bibles. We're going to be in verses 33 through 43. And it says this, speaking of God, He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, He pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes, but he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Uh, Years ago, I got to know a pastor. His name was Bob, and Bob and I uh, became friends, and we were talking. He had a brother who was not a believer, and it, and it really broke his heart. He, they had both grown up in a Christian home. His brother had gone one direction. He'd gone another, and his brother was just having a great life. He was very, he'd gone on to be very prosperous and had a great business, but Jesus was not at the center of his life, and he knew the the word from Scripture that said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? What does it mean if he has a great, a rocking good time during his days under the sun, but then forfeits all of eternity? And he was so heartbroken for his brother, he'd been praying for his brother for years, and he said that one of the most difficult prayers he ever prayed was to ask God to do whatever you have to, to make him turn to you. Kick out every crutch, God. Do whatever you must. Because 10,000 years from now, nothing will matter except that He came to know you. I know many of us are American patriots. We love our country. And we're heartbroken by the spiritual trends that we see much in evidence in the United States today. Are you willing to pray to God, do whatever you must to these people to make them return to God. These sweet-smelling people who are filled with restaurant meals, have access to medical care, God, kick out every crutch. Bottom out the economy if you must. Bring about a foreign invasion if you must. 
Are we willing to pray that kind of prayer? I think some of the things that we ask of God, we want Him to do without pain. <laughs> we want Him to, to do without... We want our cake and we want to eat it too, frankly, a lot of the time, I think, spiritually. And these last verses that we find in Psalm 107 are profoundly challenging. This is a hard word. They present for us a picture of a God who heals, but let's be square about it, He also injures. He is good, but He's not safe. They present for us a picture of a God who builds up and who tears down. He establishes and He scatters. He makes fruitful and He makes barren. He is a God who comforts the afflicted, but He also afflicts the comfortable. All of this, I fear, might make God, in the minds of some, manic, unstable, unpredictable, mercurial, capricious, somehow temperamental and unstable or something. Now, I don't think any of that's true. But I think when we view a God who does these things, He moves in one direction, He moves in another, He makes a river into a desert, He makes a desert into pools of water. What I want us to see is that God is not varying, He is the very picture of steady. We come to the end of the psalm and it says of God, He turns rivers into a desert, and we all think, well, that sounds bad. (laughs) But then we read, he turns deserts into pools of water, and we think, well, that sounds good. Then it says he pours contempt on princes. Oh, that's bad again. But then we read, he raises up the needy out of affliction. And all around around and round we go, or if not round and round, maybe it would be more accurate to say up and down like a yo-yo. And I think the point of these final verses of Psalm 107 is that God, in His sovereignty, in His perfect wisdom, is free to come down here and do whatever He has to do, whether it's hard things or easy things, to draw people to Himself. And the psalmist has matured enough in his view of God and the world to know that whatever means God uses to draw fallen humanity to himself, that is a joyous, good, and wonderful thing. It is a thing to be celebrated and praised. And inversely, any shiny thing that our sin-clouded human hearts prefer over God is not a good thing at all. It's kind of like the person who's clinging with a white-knuckle grip to a big bar of gold as they slip into the water. (laughs) Let go. Take it away from you. It's going to kill you. The psalm ends with these words, The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Verse 43, the final verse of Psalm 107, calls us to attend and consider. Or if you have the NIV version, it might read, heed and ponder. 
or if you have the King James Version, observe and understand. In the original Hebrew, the words are shamar and bene. The first means something like to take notice of things. Put them front and center in your attention. Attend to these things. Look at them. Don't look away. Look directly at these confusing things. And the second calls us to interpret or discern or understand these things in light of the truth of something else. Uh, It's a bit like if you're going up a stairwell in the dark, and it's dark, and you can't really see where you're putting your foot down. It's very confusing, so you reach out and you grab the banister. That is a steadying thing that you can hold on to while you navigate that which is confusing. This is the idea behind attend and consider. As you're looking at these confusing things, these things that trouble your heart, rivers made into a barren waste, hold on to this truth. (laughs) Consider them in light of the overarching truth that you have already given assent to that God, the one who is doing these things, is good. He is wise. His steadfast love endures forever. This difficult, confusing thing that you're seeing, interpret it, understand it, ponder it through the lens of what you know to be true, that He is right on. He's good. He's wise. He's for you. So that's what's going on here. So attend to the God who makes rivers into deserts and deserts into pools of water, but understand these happenings in light of that great overarching truth that God is motivated by love and a desire to lift you up in all that He does. And we see this relationship between attending and considering in verse 42, the verse that comes right before it. It says, of the upright, that they see these things, that's attending, and they are glad. Now, glad at some of these things that have been, that they've seen, is impossible unless you believe in God's goodness. That comes from considering and believing that God is motivated by love and goodness in the doing of all that He does. I, I think some people do not wrestle to understand the God of the Bible as He is in all His fullness. And I don't say that with an air of superiority. Do you know why I believe that some people don't wrestle with who God is in all of His fullness? Let me tell you, I didn't. I, <laughs> I still struggle to do this sometimes. I tend to uh, pick and choose things about God that line up with my view of Him and to linger on them, to put a greater emphasis on them than other things. But what the Bible does is they, it challenges us to view God in all of His fullness, really wrestle and understand this God. But I think a lot of people don't. I think at times I haven't. They don't really attend to these things. They only attend, pay attention, give thought to some aspects of how God operates. And because that's true, they will come to hold a warped, and I say also a fragile, understanding of God. I say fragile because if you don't hold a fully formed 
biblical view of God and how He operates in the world, that view will not survive contact with reality over time. God will show up in all His fullness, and when He does not say the things people want Him to say, when He does not become who they want Him to be, when He does not do for them what they want Him to do, they will cast Him off. That insurance policy failed, and they are disappointed and disillusioned. And it will be revealed that it was not God they loved, but rather a version of God, or more likely, it was something that they thought God ought to give them. God was a means to some end, and He was never truly who they wanted. For example, they might love the idea of a God who turns a desert waste into pools of water. I don't know how many times I have prayed Isaiah 40 in my own personal life. Prayed that prayer for God. Make this barren waste, make somehow water what's needed to show up for me. I've prayed that prayer. And I think that is true to who God is. God is a God who turns barren wastelands into fruitful paradises. And many of us can, our testimony in our own lives is of a God who brought us out of a barren, lifeless place into a place abounding with the fullness of life and joy that comes through Jesus. That's part of many of our stories. But then they come to this idea of the God who turns rivers into a desert. And that seems antithetical to their mind, to a God who is praiseworthy, to a God whose character is marked by love. And instead of attending and considering, they pass judgment on God and they say, you're not who I thought you were, you're actually bad. Where's my water? You failed me. (laughs) Others might celebrate and feel vindicated by a God who visits calamity on the wicked, Yes, they think. That's it. Turn their existence into a desert waste. Right on. Give them hell, literally. Jonah, the Old Testament prophet, was exactly like this. But then God showed up in His fullness. That He's a God of grace. He wanted to make the barren wasteland of Nineveh into a place full of praises and life. And Jonah, who had a warped view of God wanted none of it. That was never the God he was following. So, attend and consider. I I think I've told this story before, but when I was a little kid, I was in a grocery store. I was following my mom, and my mom was wearing a jacket. And then, at some point, I was in the produce section, and I looked up and the woman I had been following turned around. She was wearing a jacket very similar to my mom's, but she was not my mom. At some point, I got mixed up. I was distracted probably in the cereal aisle or the toy aisle or something. <laughs> and I started following a jacket. And I got in the produce aisle. She turned around, and I'm, that's not my mom. And I started crying. And she was very kind. She took me to the customer service desk. My mom heard is the mother of Josh Tate here? Now, I think one of the reasons why we're confronted in Scripture with verses like these is because some of us in the normal course of our Christian life 
at some point maybe have started following a God that isn't really God. God confronts us here with some truths we need to see about Him because the danger is that we'll wander off into following a lookalike. And He wants us to see some really important things. So let's do that this morning. Let's attend and consider. Let's look at the ups and downs of our life in this fallen world, but consider them in light of what we know with bedrock certainty to be true of God. He is good, guys. He's only good all the time. He is love, and He's right on. In verses 33 through 43, the psalmist is acknowledging that not everything that God's people experience during their days under the sun can be described as deliverance or can be received with complete and utter joy. Life has its pains and its tragedies, and that is true even for followers of God. Listen, God had, uh, all, has so many children, only one of them without sin, but none of them were without suffering. Jesus himself was maligned, lied about, betrayed, spit upon, whipped, nailed to a cross. Horrible miscarriage of justice was visited on him. He was bone-tired and hungry. He suffered. But God was on the throne. God was good. God was right. All that was wise. That was for your good that those things were visited on Him. But then, as we follow God and we experience suffering, loss, horrible tragedy, many of us go, God, where were you? And so we need to attend and consider. We've got to look at these things squarely and consider them in light of who God is. So life has its pains and its tragedies, yet in spite of the reality of these things, we can and should continue to praise God for His wisdom, His goodness, His steadfast love toward us. In the book of Daniel, we're introduced, if you're not a Bible nerd and you don't, you're, maybe you're new to the Bible, you may not know this name, but we're introduced to a Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was king over the vast Babylonian empire. He invaded, and Judah took all, you know, sacked the cities and removed a lot of the most prominent people away to his own kingdom in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is kind of an interesting character. It's one of those places in the Bible where uh, the biblical text uh, overlaps with your history books. Uh, he was a, definitely a very um, prominent historical figure. But at one point, the Bible tells us Nebuchadnezzar is out walking on the rooftop of the royal palace. We read about this in Daniel chapter 4. And it tells us that he looked out over the grandeur of his capital city, and these words escaped his lips. (laughs) He's up there on his rooftop. He's looking out over the magnificence, the crown jewel of his empire, and he says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? (laughs) Now, these words, 
betrayed a heart that did not humbly acknowledge God, but in fact, even more than that, they betray that he regarded himself as godlike. And this brings to mind verse 40 of Psalm 107. He pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. Now, Scripture tells us that God punished Nebuchadnezzar with insanity, a disease of the mind. It says, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. I think anybody who loved Nebuchadnezzar Maybe his mama was the only one, I don't know. Would have looked at this event in his life with profound sadness. My son was doing so great. And now he's lost his ever-loving mind. He's cracked. He's gone soft in the head, poor Neb. But then we're told this, at the end of the days, and this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking, through the pages of Scripture. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. He blessed who? He blessed the one who visited insanity on Him for seven years. He says, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, presumably himself included. And he does according to his will among the the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in the kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble." This man was just stricken in a terrible way for a great span of time with a horrific mental illness. And at the end of it all, he says of the one who so afflicted him, his works are right and his ways are just. And in his last statement here, in those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He is confessing his own sin. He confronted that in me which was flourishing like a disease. And he cured me of it (laughs) with a very long surgery. Look at the end of the matter. Nebuchadnezzar says that he praises and extols and honors the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. That's him attending and considering 
I think some people must read verses 40 and 41 of Psalm 107 and think they are describing two different kinds of people. In verse 40, it says, He pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. And verse 41 says, But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. And we think, well, the verse 40 is about one kind of person, and verse 41 is like a different kind of person. The prince of verse 40 is separate and distinct from the needy of verse 41. But Nebuchadnezzar shows us they are one and the same person. Why is, the, why is contempt poured on the prince and he's taken out into a trackless waste so that he can learn needy reliance on God? So he can learn that his heart posture towards God shouldn't be one of haughtiness and puffed up pride. He needs to be brought low so that he can embrace God as needed and wonderful. And God doesn't do this, by the way, because he's needy. No, no, no. He is doing this for Nebuchadnezzar because he loves Nebuchadnezzar. I think, uh, and this again is a point we revisit quite often here at State Road, but when we say, when the Bible says, when God's testimony about Himself is that He is perfect, He is perfect, meaning He has no needs. He is completely and utterly without need in His relationship to human beings. He's perfectly content. He is so full and perfect, that you can't add anything to Him. He can only overflow as a blessing to us. And so, when He looks down upon Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar is not living and behaving and speaking in ways that glorify God, God is not injured. God is not somehow feeling deprived of what's due Him. He is looking upon Nebuchadnezzar and thinking, this one is missing it. <laughs> this one is living in a way that is poisonous to his spirit. This one is destroying himself. And what he does for Nebuchadnezzar, he does for Nebuchadnezzar, not for himself. It's not because God will feel empty if Nebuchadnezzar doesn't acknowledge how great he is. Don't imagine God standing there, hat in hand, hoping that you pick him for your team. He is not pathetic. He is not needy. He is perfect, but he loves you enough not to let you wander off to destruction. That's what we see in Psalm 107. When he pours contempt on a prince and makes him to wander in a trackless waste, when he takes a nation that is like a river and reduces it to a desert, all that is done that they might return to what will bring them joy, not just today, but 10,000 years from now. And I think we need to see this. It's very important. The, the prince in verse 40 is one and the same as the needy in verse 41, or at least it can be. Nebuchadnezzar says in praise-filled aberration that those who walk in pride he's able to humble. And when Nebuchadnezzar said, and no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
This reminds me very much of that line from Psalm 107, the upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Nothing can be said. Now, in, in our, as we kind of wrap up these thoughts, here are four things that I think, it's one thing to just acknowledge the truth of this dynamic, but what do we do with it? <laughs> Where do we go from here? What difference does it make in how you live your life this week or your relationship to God? I think these verses, these last verses at the tail end of Psalm 107, they call us toward four things primarily. And the first one is this. They call us to hold in our hearts and our minds a high reverence for God. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says this. This is God speaking through His prophet Isaiah. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is a, the, a, the prophet Isaiah whose mind is filled with a high reverential view of God. I think so many human beings look at God's activities in the world and they think, well, that's not what I would have done. You're terrible. <laughs> Isaiah says, you don't do what I would have done and that's great. Your way is better than mine. Your perspective is higher than mine. Your vantage point is superior in every way to my own. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. Let me attend and consider. As I grapple my way through the darkness, let me hold on with a white-knuckle grip to the truth of who you are. And with that as my north star, I will make sense of all this from that starting place. Romans eleven thirty three, and this is Paul, I, I mean... We all have people who are superior to us intellectually and have gone further than us in the Christian faith. None of us are where Paul was at. Paul is an amazing example of a Christ follower. But he has this to say, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. This man who is responsible, he's the human tool, the human means through which God gave us a big chunk of our Scripture, at the end of it all, his conclusion is, how unsearchable are your judgments and how inscrutable your ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now, don't get me wrong, there is certainly nothing wrong with trying to understand the mind of God. There is no virtue in following God mindlessly. God, in fact, encourages us to worship Him with our whole selves, including your intellect. But even as we think and explore, we should also simultaneously and humbly recognize that God's ways will always be beyond our full understanding, and there will be times where we must proceed by worshiping through tears and confusion, while trusting in God's goodness even though we don't understand perfectly the why and the wherefore. 
And this brings us to number two. So first, I think these verses call us to hold this reverence for God, a high view of Him. And second, they train us to look upon our lives with an eternal perspective. By attending these things, considering them in light of the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever, that word forever is a cue, these call us to look beyond what is seen toward what is hoped for. That is the very stuff of faith. Hebrews 11.1 famously defines faith as being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Abraham is a a really good example of this. In Hebrews 11, which is uh, in your Bible, some people call it the world's hall of fame of faith, we're told this about Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. I want you to stop right here for just a second and try and put yourself in the shoes of Abraham. God made some incredible promises to this man. He said, I am going to give you a land of your very own, and I am going to give you descendants as numerous as as the stars in the sky. And as he is approaching death itself, he has no land. He has one son. (laughs) He's living in a tent. Did God fail him? Did God fail to make good on his promises? No, no, no. It continues, verse 13, these all died in faith. In other words, Abraham came to the end of his life believing that God would make good on his promises even though he died never seeing them fulfilled. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus... Make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. This reminds me, again, of that week leading up to Easter Sunday, that first Easter. Do you remember the scene... Jesus um, delayed coming to help uh, Lazarus. He heard Lazarus was sick. He waited four days, then went. He gets there. Lazarus has been dead for some time. And Mary um, came out, and, and uh, I think it's Mary. It's either Mary or Martha. I think it's Mary. We'll see in the coming weeks. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm a Bible scholar. Trust me. <laughs> one of those two sisters. I think it's Mary. Mary comes out and says, uh, 
if you were here, you could have saved him, something like that. And Jesus says, oh, he's going he's gonna to be raised again. And Mary says, I know he will on the last day. Now, that's actually a really good answer. And that's a, that's a substantial answer. That's a weighty answer. That's, a hands, that's an answer you can hang something off of. That's true. That's a great perspective. Jesus, I believe in the promise of the resurrection. I believe Lazarus will be among them on the last day. Jesus goes on to perform a miracle, a great miracle. He resurrects Lazarus. But one of the, the, the thing I want to take out of that story is actually the faith of, I think it's Mary's answer. This is the problem with deviating from my text. <laughs> We're fumbling towards the truth in front of a crowd. It's not a good look. But the idea here is that she says, I believe, I, I believe in faith a promise. I'm greeting from afar something I haven't seen with my eyes. And that's a great answer. Now, many of us believe that on the last day we're going to be given new bodies, even as we pray for these bodies to be healed, patched up, kept going. We believe that one day we're going to enter the place, the home that Jesus has been preparing for us, even as we pray over the earthly homes that we currently have. There are many things that fill our lives with worry today that we know one day God is going to fix in a permanent, abiding solution kind of way. And Abraham is one such person. It's like if, you, if I wrote you a check after service today, and let's say I wrote it for a million bucks, all of you would look at that check and go, well, that's not legit. <laughs> that's, he doesn't have that kind of money, and you're right. That check is only as good as the person who wrote it. Now, with God, one of the things we have to see is that with Him, promise is, is the exact same as performance. What He promises is as good as if He'd already given it to you. If God says, here's a check for a million bucks, it's as good as if it was in your bank account already. And so, Abraham believed God's promises. He had the check in hand. And death itself couldn't nullify or negate the promise-keeping power of God. God kept those promises beyond the grave. And this, and this idea of Abraham seeking a home, of course, it takes us back to verses 4 through 9 of Psalm 107. And that's the stanza that describes the desert wanderer who was trying to find a way to a city to dwell in. And Abraham certainly did find it. I need to hurry up here. Uh, number three, the third thing that these verses call us to is this call to repentance. Listen, we've done a deep dive into the mysterious nature of God this morning, and I have made the point repeatedly that God in His fullness is out beyond our comprehension. There are the finite limits of what human beings can rise to in our intellect, and in our imagination, and God is somewhere out beyond that. And although the ways of God in this life are beyond our ability to understand fully, nevertheless, the Bible is proof that there are a great many things that He does want you to know with certainty. 
He is mysterious, not because He likes keeping us in the dark, but rather because He is God and we are not. Christianity maintains the creator-creature distinction. He is God. He is vast. He is infinite. And by virtue of being a creature, a created being, we cannot envelop all of who He is in our minds. In fact, He has made Himself known to us through His Word. He wants to be known, but it's beyond our capacity to know Him completely. So He gave us His Word. He sent Jesus to make the invisible God visible, and He gave us the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But still, I find myself as a human being wishing I had the capacity to contain more of God in my mind. And in that, I resemble like a coffee cup saying, I wish I was a 50-gallon drum that I could contain more of the ocean. Because you could become, you could grow and grow and grow in your capacity to know and understand God, and you would be no nearer to containing the infinitude of who God is. You could be a coffee cup saying, I wish I was a swimming pool. No, 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 no. I wish I was Lake Superior. (laughs) And still... His vastness, His infinity, you can't come up with a receptacle large enough to contain that which is without limits. He's not mysterious because He likes keeping you in the dark. In fact, He's made Himself known to us through some wonderful and amazing ways. We just have to hum. Again, it comes back to having a high reverential view of God. Uh, Many times... One of the reasons, uh, well, I won't go there, never mind, but you, 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 you might, in the course of your life, encounter a Christian who is clearly smarter than you. Just this person is way smarter than me. This happens. And when that happens, I want you to remind yourself of Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, where it says, his thoughts are not our thoughts. In fact, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his thoughts higher than any man's. So even though some people are smarter than me, let's say they're up on a ladder and I'm laying on the ground. Guys, we're both looking up at the stars. Does being on top of the ladder give people who are smarter than me a better view of the stars? I don't think so. I don't think even if I'm down in a valley and they're up on the summit of a mountain that they have a better view. It's still just way, way up there. For all their high genius, smart people do not really have a better view of the heavenlies than other people. In fact, their lofty perch may only prove useful for looking down on others than looking up to God. And again, we come back to this idea that God is vast and infinite. He is high. So even though some of God's ways will always be mysterious to us, there are some things that He has made explicitly and abundantly clear even to knuckleheads like you and me. There is no confusion about what wickedness is. And the fact that wickedness brings correction and chastening punishment to God's children and wrath to those who are outside. Sin, and Scripture is abundantly clear on this, gives birth to pain, misery, shame, 
and ultimately judgment. God has not left us confused about what is right and what is wrong. Obedience, just as surely as sin gives birth to pain, obedience leads to blessed joy and eventual reward. Brothers and sisters, we inhabit a moral universe governed by an all-seeing righteous judge who sits on high. Nothing escapes his notice. And these verses call us to reject the sin that leads us away from God that enslaves us, that flourishes like a cancer in our inner world and surrounds our life with these storms. So certainly one of the things these verses should point us toward is to repent. Is there any pattern of behavior in my life where I know I am moving contrary to God's will, to God's law, And clearly, one of the ways we should respond, and these last final verses make that clear, is by repentance. Uh, This reminds me, by the way, of Psalm 32. In Psalm 32, this is what God uh, feels like. You know, when He makes the river into a waste, when He does all these things, He does them to correct us. He does these things to make us return back to Him. But he says this in Psalm 32, verse 9, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Listen, if right now today you are entering into some pattern of sinful behavior or thought, some relationship that's out of bounds, some way of living that's dishonoring to your God, God is saying, don't be like a mule that I have to curb, that I have to bring back to me by hurting you. Don't make me turn rivers into wastelands. Don't make me do that. Don't be like that. Repent. Come back to me. And again, his reason for doing that is, again, not so that he'll feel a certain way, but because that's what we need. That's what's good for us. And then lastly, the last, the fourth thing that these verses call us toward, after a high reverential view for God and an eternal perspective and a calling us to repent is to be filled with thanksgiving. It says, they rejoice and are glad. They give thanks to God for His ways. Uh, I'm, again, I'm very impressed with Paul a lot of the time. He says in Philippians 4.12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound, and in, 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 in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And one of those ways that he had found was through the practice of thanksgiving. In verses 4 through 7 of that same chapter, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So today, whatever your circumstances are, I pray that God would meet you there in a wonderful way. And that these verses would help us in the midst of that view to have a high, reverenced view of God. We'd look upon them with an eternal perspective. 
we would repent and seek God in the midst of that season and give thanks to Him. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, I'll confess there are certainly preachers who are up on a ladder and I'm down on the ground. And God, I wish for my friends that they had had somebody to help them navigate these verses. But God, this is what you gave me. Father, I was certainly challenged this week uh, by these verses. Father, we walk out of here today filled with the truth that uh, nobody who wrestles with your word loses. God, you are, you are vast and you are big and we are small. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to know you and understand you more. And God, as we attend to the reality of living in a fallen world, God, there is much that makes us look to you with a prayer of confusion on our lips. But God, even in the midst of those things that worry us and, and bring questions to mind, Father, we, we cling with certainty to what we know to be true of you, which is that you are good. God, you are wise, you're just, you're right. And Father, we will choose to praise you in the midst of these things. God, we will choose to trust you. Father, we know that one day, all these things that we see, we will then see clearly. There is going to come a day where we will know and understand things that today remain question marks for us. But Father, in the midst of that, I pray that you would grow in us a faith that is sure of what we hope for and that is certain of what we do not yet see. Father, I pray that we would emerge out of times of trial like Nebuchadnezzar, praising you, saying that you are right, that you are good. And Father, I pray that you would give us the faith of Abraham to greet from afar those things that you have promised to us and to, uh, to think of them as though they were already in hand. Father, we love you, we trust you. Pray, Lord, you take these verses and grow them in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen.